Hello and welcome. I'm Alexander. I'm Simon. We are Native in Tech, covering the latest from the IT industry with a specific focus on Microsoft and how to get actual value from technology. This is episode 179, recorded on March the 28th, 2022. You will be able to find this and our previous episodes on nativeintech.com, iTunes, Spotify, and on most podcasting platforms. It seems that Haney is tearing up the slopes with her board. Absolutely. And and uh, since she is much better at doing that than we are, I think that's how it should be. Oh, so you're you're thinking this is a fairly reasonable division of labor? I I would say so. She is considerably better at snowboarding than either of us are. As, as to the best of my knowledge, you may have a secret career as a snowboard snowboard skier. So my 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 <laughs> snowboard championship days are long gone. Uh, considering they never. So the thing is, I would love to try a snowboard. I mm-hmm. I did a lot of skateboarding when I was a kid. I have the uh, one wheel sort of kind yeah. of whatever you're going to call that thing. Uh, but a- apparently, according to people that know things, which I don't, uh, running a one wheel is very um, akin to um, a snowboard. But again, I-, I I haven't tried. And the thing that scares me with snowboards is the fact that you're rigidly attached to the board. You're, you're stuck. Yeah, I mean, the skis... I've had some pretty impressive spills with skis, with me going one direction and the skis going somewhere else completely. And that's okay, because they separated from my feet and thus did not completely destroy my ankles or my knees, or my posterior for that matter. So that's why I I try to stay away from from snowboards. Isn't that the downside of actually knowing a bit about medicine, that you know what will happen if you crash with a snowboard? (laughs) Yes. Um, yes. And I mean, there's a reason why you generally wear both a backboard, a helmet, mm-hmm. and wrist guards. Yeah. But yes, let's let's see. Hopefully we will not need to talk um, human anatomy with Haney when she's back. No, as, as we said, she knows stuff. Uh, but today we'll actually talk about things that are going out of time as well as we'll talk about the future. And and probably some, we're going to touch on some aspects of anatomy as well. Oh, <laughs> this will be interesting, but absolutely. I think this might be one of the better segues ever because I'm thinking about the whole ergonomics work from home thing. Ah, you mean that. Yeah, I was actually thinking about ergonomics as well, but uh, I don't see what that has... To, to do with anatomics because I'm just thinking about shares. That's well, ergonomics kind of builds on anatomy, you know. Ah, I thought it was only dependent on money. Huh? You got a point there, though. <laughs> exactly. We'll get back to that later I'm, today. I think we will. So we're going to start with the death of Azure Data Lake Analytics. It is no longer the worst kept secret in Microsoft's history. It's finally happening. Azure Data Lake Analytics is going away in 2024. There's a new um, Azure deprecation dashboard on, uh, on GitHub. And one of the things that popped up was ADLA. So um, I'm gonna backtrack a bit because a couple of years back, Microsoft put forth 
two new cool features in the data analytics space. And and remember that this was long before Synapse. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the two coolest things in recorded history, according to Microsoft at the time, <laughs> was Azure Data Lake Storage, ADLS Gen 1, mm-hmm. and Azure Data Lake Analytics. And this was a, a one-two punch for a complete 360 analytics platform. So what it was, it was a, a storage, um, essentially stored service with an hierarchical namespace, which was something that storage accounts didn't have at the time, and Azure Data Lake Analytics, which was an analytics platform is probably the best way of putting it. And it could do a lot of really funky things that you can only dream on in, in SQL. And it had its its own language, U-SQL. And uh, quite a few people really went all in on this product. And it was good. It was really, really nice. Up until Microsoft kind of um, made a 180 and, and just said, nah, nah, we're not going to keep doing, doing this. And they essentially just abandoned it at the side of the road. They found Databricks instead. And... If you've seen this this meme picture of the guy walking with his girlfriend and then the guy's <laughs> turning around and looking at that the girlfriend to next to him was ADLA and the girl walking the other way that was Databricks because Microsoft completely changed everything and said nope Databricks is the way we're going to go and yeah you you can keep using ADLA if you want to but nobody's going to care and, and it was kind of a, a a really poorly kept secret that ADLA was going to go away. But if you asked Microsoft, they said, no, 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 this this is a first-class citizen, yada, yada, yada. But no, um, nobody in the right mind has been using ADLA for anything new for quite some time. But again, now it's done. It's going to go away in a year. So it's definite time to upgrade to, uh, to Synapse, which in turn kind of brings us to another interesting question. Databricks is not Microsoft. Synapse is. Would you want to build things on Databricks going forward? I don't know. I mean, everything from Microsoft is pointing towards that, no, Databricks is going to be fine. It's going to be, well, sort of kind of a competitor to, to Synapse, but it's still its own thing. You're safe. But that's also kind of what we heard about ADLA. So... I don't know. I have no insight into this. It's just my my devil's horns poking out. But isn't that a quite interesting discussion in itself that it's okay when Microsoft kills off one of their own products in in for the benefit of something they actually have. But to officially kind of say do not use our partner's product because they probably see them as partners in this more than competitors. I think that is unusual for them to do. Yeah, um, and I, I I would be very confused if they did mm. because they don't have to. Exactly. They can just keep pushing and synapse. I mean, how, how do you control what gets put out there? Well, you decide on what you want to um, reward your own people on. Yeah. As it stands, they're rewarded on synapse and databricks slowly oh. take away the, the kickback mm-hmm. for Databricks and guess what they're going to be selling. So yeah, Microsoft is, is essentially holding all of the keys here yeah. and Databricks is is playing second fiddle. Um, yeah. Now, Databricks is a fantastic tool. Do not get me wrong. I would not drop that thing 
it for quite some time. But it's not Microsoft. It's not a definitely not a, a first class citizen in this case. And which reminds me, we need to um, we need to get um, uh, Simon Whiteley on to talk Databricks uh, because he has insights to Databricks that I could only dream of, and he does things to Databricks that I would never dream of doing. Does he work for Microsoft or does he work for Databricks? No, or? no, he's he's uh, advancing analytics. Oh. in out of the UK. I mean, it, it's the guy on all the the, the horrible stickers that Terry prints <laughs> up and, and puts everywhere. <laughs> yeah, well, absolutely. I'm always happy to talk to people that you find interesting because most times, even though I understand very little what they do, I find them interesting as well. He is extremely interesting, very entertaining, and scary smart. So there has been a Power BI March update, and it was kind of late. It really got out just as we um, had recorded the last episode. Mm -hmm. And as always, there is a ton of new cool things, but there is a new thing that I find extremely interesting and important, and that's error bars. And do you know what you use an error bar for on a, a line chart? No, but I'm intrigued. You should be. Because whenever we look at a line chart, we essentially think that the numbers we're seeing, they're, they're absolute, they're, they're correct. How would you visualize uncertainty in your data? That's where error bars comes in. And either Ooh. you can have, as it says on the 10 bars, vertical mm-hmm. bars pointing out. So this point is essentially between X and Y, or you can have a shaded area. And ah, this is yeah. a kind of discussion that is is completely lacking from from dashboards and, and reports in, in business. This is, this is second nature to anyone who's into statistics, because you can never get a statistician to commit 100% to something, they're always going to give you some some kind of uncertainty. Yeah. And in, in business, we don't talk about this. We definitely should, because this means that if your error bars are kind of large, that gives you an insight into either the quality or, or the, the quantity of the data, i.e., you're going to look at this and go, oh, that's, that's an interesting number, but I might need to be somewhat careful basing any any decisions off this but before now you didn't have that well you did have it in in third parties but you didn't have it in in the the built-in line arts and this is uh, in preview and i i know for a fact that there's going to be much more coming out on this topic as as we go but wow this this is just this is so worth it for me if you have that absolute and you calculate things on it uh, you may draw the wrong conclusions and you don't know how certain whoever have put the data there are on the actual data. It's like, look at all the commercials on TV. 100% of the people we asked were positive to this. All 15 of them. All 15 of them who were also primed that you were going to ask this. Yeah, exactly. No, and, and that's that's an, an, a wonderful example of cherry picking. Mm-hmm. And if we take this conversation forward in time, essentially, and do a... a um, a forecast, a forecast by definition is going to be less certain the farther you go into the future. Yeah. That's where a, a 
an error bar or error graph or any kind of mm. error display is essential. But if you don't know how uncertainty works and how to project it, well, then you you cannot decide on how much truth to to um, apply to this um, this specific forecast. So yes, th- this is a really important thing. And that's the differentiation between marketing and data science. <laughs> in many ways, yes. D- data scientists still want to be able to look themselves in the mirror. Um, exactly. That is apparently something that most marketing people don't care about. I think we just, or I, I think I just tossed most of the marketing people <laughs> under the bus. I'm, I'm just waiting for Blythe to, to call me up and, and tear me a new one. I'll keep going because I have a lot of fun stuff today. Yeah, and, and I only have heavy stuff. So <laughs> please yeah. please go on. So do you remember Gartner? I, I have heard about them, yes. Yeah, it's it's this small company that has... Um, in, in many ways, they have more opinions than I do. Uh, uh, that's the, true. The main, yeah, the, the main difference is that people listen to them. And they, and they get paid to have opinions. We get you get paid for not sharing your opinions. So that's why I'm... Oh, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. No, so so Gartner, they, they're doing a lot of work and they've just um, announced their magic quadrant for analytics and BI platforms where Microsoft for 15 years has been the leader with essentially Power BI. Now, in this case, it's not only Power BI, it's Power BI and, and Synapse. And what I think is interesting is that Microsoft is the farthest to the right and the, the farthest up top. So both on the, the x-axis, which is completeness of vision, and the y-axis, that is ability to execute. Second comes Salesforce. And Salesforce, as we know, bought Tableau a while back. So that's why they've parked themselves there. But then it's just click, and click is far, far down. They're very close to the the um, underside. They're they're just above the the y-axis um, zero, if you will. Um, Amazon is is pretty well behind. One thing that confused me and surprised me was Pyramid Analytics, which I've had some dealings with. They they are hopelessly behind and and what's labeled as a niche player. So, yeah, not so much change for Microsoft. They're, they're where they've always been. Uh, but that quadrant is getting uh, barren. There's a lot of space there. But isn't I think it's important also to have in mind what Gardner is saying here, that they see the completeness of vision, like the, the entire setup. And I think, Many of the smaller players have a hard time in competing with that and may not even have that as their preferred place to be. They want to be in the niche or the visionary place. Uh, And it doesn't have to be bad. It's just that they are niche and they are visionaries. So I I think it's important. And I think that's... At at some point, we should really speak to someone from Gartner. Uh, I've listened to a a person as a keynote speaker at Idle Disrupt a couple of times that is an absolute fantastic speaker and talks about the digital workplace as such. And I think it would be interesting to listen to someone at Gartner and see, okay, how are we going to interpret these? It's the same with Forrester. Uh, 
because they do a similar thing. What does it really tell you? Uh, and it tells us what we want it to tell us. This makes me so happy because yeah. this is exactly what I keep banging on about yeah. in The Untruthful Art. You see exactly what you want to see. Everything I, I just said is from my viewpoint. And yeah. you said it best. How do we interpret this? Yeah. And I would love to have someone who has much more insight into the other players have a, have a chat about that with us. Yeah, because all of these four are things I would be proud to call myself. I'm a challenger. I'm a visionary. I'm a niche player, or I'm a leader. Like, yeah, I mean, there there are different um, mindsets, yeah, for sure. And and I would say that the ability to execute is really the important thing, because that's where you have the the visionary from the leaders that they have a completeness of what they want to do, but they can't execute. It's a little like me when I build things. I have a great vision of what I'm going to build. And then I get a hammer and a nail and ability to execute is zero. Yeah, for sure. That's why we need to surround ourselves with people that complete us. Yeah. People who are not at all interested in, in drawing and thinking of what to, to do with this, mm -hmm. but are absolutely ninjas with a, a hammer and a nail. Yeah. That's how you build a good team. Exactly. You need vision. You need people that are executors. <laughs> well, executors. <laughs> uh, that's one of the many retirement packages that we offer here. <laughs> exactly. And I was just going to tell you, say, when, when you talked about the um, Azure Data Lake Analytics, that that feature must be named Azure Graveyard. Wouldn't that be a fantastic feature? Speaking of the Azure Graveyard... <laughs> That was, oh. that was a pretty nice segue. <laughs> I don't think that was intentional, though. Now, we have two things coming up here, and it can be either of them. Yes. So um, I'm, I'm, before I, I hand over to you, um, uh, I yeah. want to really talk about the Microsoft Cemetery. Yeah. Um, Killedbymicrosoft.info. It's a site chronicling all the, the tools and the services that Microsoft has killed it's, it's a kind of a fun place to stroll around and, and look at the the um headstones and uh well we have these wonderful things like silverlight uh, just hanging around so definitely go check that out that the 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 microsoft cemetery uh, what i haven't seen before is how they show things that are going to be killed off mm -hmm. with skype for business everything else has tombstones skype yep. for business have a guillotine <laughs> yep well i i know a a swedish agency that i will send that to or two oh funny <laughs> what that. I, 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 was, I was scrolling here and found windows mobile oh that wasn't fair i know right yeah, and speaking of fair let's let's go to uh, the the transatlantic data privacy framework yeah, and, and big disclaimer here. These are very new news items. I have read up on some of them, and they're as everything when it comes to data privacy and transatlantic uh, transfer of data, very different opinions on this. So when, um, I think it was, yeah, it was Joe Biden and um, 
Ursula van der Leyen, I think I'm, I'm pronouncing her name correctly, when they met uh, as part of uh, President Biden's trip to EU, they also announced that they have an intention of signing a new treaty that to some extent would be what safe harbor were supposed to be, basically protecting uh, European data from the um, surveillance and and, uh, ability for the US government to request the public cloud vendors to actually transfer data to them in in many other ways. This was then cancelled by the Schrems 2 judgment a while back, and that have spawned a lot of discussions, not least in Sweden in terms of can we use American cloud services uh, and feel safe that it protects our integrity in line with GDPR, but also in terms of national and EU security. So now my uh, US and Europe, or EU, very important distinction, EU, not Europe, um, have committed to find a new way of doing this. And one of the, and, and it's of course great that everyone have the intention of making this possible, basically making it clear to EU organizations that yes, you can use American cloud services uh, and store your data within Europe. There are a few things that people are hesitant to. And the most obvious thing that I've read so far is that since it's hard for the US government to change a law, the way they intend to do this is by an executive order. And that may not be sufficient for the EU Data Protection Court because then it's not the law. And it's a question of how powerful or how strong does a new executive order become over the past executive order as well as the laws that are governing this on the US side. So a lot of people are now working on, okay, how does this impact us? When will this happen? Is it enough? Is it sufficient? And I think this discussion will go on for a very, very long time ahead. But I think it's good to see that they are trying to solve this and that it's not just like companies like Microsoft, Google, Amazon, and so on that are trying to do this. It's actually of interest to politicians on both sides. Of course, driven a lot by financial gain. But I think it's a good step ahead. I'm sure we'll follow up on this. uh, And I'm sure it's time to speak to someone in legal again. But let's just say that we are already having ongoing very... or very polarized discussions in Sweden in terms of how this is going to play out, what does it really mean, and should we still use this or continue to build our own cloud services either within Sweden or within the EU? For sure. And and just touching on that, the the climate of that discussion has turned absolutely vile. Yeah. Uh, up to and including personal attacks. Yep. So this has turned into religion for a lot of people in the worst possible way. 
on both sides. On that's important. Yes, to very say. very yeah. important point. Yes, yeah. on, on both sides. So there there's no one person being being the moron here. It's it's nope. the manure is well spread over the entire field, and. One of the things that I, I figured out when I was looking at this, so uh, Max Schrems, uh, the yeah. the Austrian guy that, uh, well, it's his name on Schrems one and two. Mm-hmm. Um, he's more than happy to do a Schrems three, yeah, uh, because he he essentially called this whole thing lipstick on a pig, yeah. Um, and one of the things that I, I I hadn't realized when until I started looking at this was the fact that Privacy Shield was not stricken. It's it was never struck, uh, stricken down. Privacy Shield still stands. What the the European Court of Justice ruling did strike down was the EU Commission's adequacy decision in favor of Privacy Shield. Mm-hmm. And consequently, and I'm reading in verbatim here, a key objective of the new transatlantic data privacy framework is not to replace Privacy Shield, but to revive it and enhance it with new mechanisms to address the flaws identified in TRAMS 2. Yeah. So... From from where I'm sitting, they're trying to kind of patch the holes in in the sinking ship, yeah. In instead of a commissioning a whole new boat, yeah. And I do think if if we go back to the early podcasts, because we actually recorded podcast before GDPR, I'm absolutely certain that we will have spoken about how this will actually come into play. Because what we're seeing now is something that's needed. I think it's great that. Max Schrems and others are taking these discussions to court because we know knew when GDPR were put into place that we would have a long period of time where organizations all across the EU and the world had to adopt and find what does this really mean. Uh, and I think it, we, we need to see that. We are seeing that in other countries um, and I would say that Sweden have been rather loose in how they have used these new laws very few organizations have had penalties a lot of have had var- warnings which is fair but now we're soon at a point where okay what does this really mean how far should this take and, and um, i think it's also interesting to understand more about what is the difference if i have my work email address in azure and my my name and my company and all of that on LinkedIn because it's the same personal information. And I think that differentiation is important to understand in terms of choice and and what does it really mean and also the differentiation between integrity and national security which I personally feel that the side that are on the opposite side of where I am in practice in terms of using American cloud services are often mixing these two together. And I think that's unfair to the entire integrity discussion. Uh, so it, it's a, a logical fallacy uh, known yeah. as the slippery slope argument. Mm-hmm. Um, if A, then B, then yeah. Z. Yeah. Uh, where th- there is really no or a very sketchy connection point between these. So I, I, I totally agree. And both sides need to step back and look at this from a less than emotional standpoint. And yep. we all know that humans are so well suited for that. Bravo. Bravo indeed. Apparently, the whole idea of doing a countdown on Twitter is all the rage these days. 
<laughs> so for about 10 days, we've seen every day a new number and some kind of weird-ass icon pop up from the Italians, Marco and Alberto. And we all go, what the hell? And try to look at it from different views. We no idea, absolutely no idea. But today it was um, finally showed um, to the world. And that is something called Bravo. And Bravo is, say hello to Bravo, your new Power BI buddy. It is a, a lightweight user-facing application. So in Power BI, you have stuff like Tableau, uh, tab, uh, damn it, Tabular Editor or DAX Studio. And th these are extremely powerful tools, but they are definitely not um, geared towards the end user because yeah, you, you can you can do a lot of damage and they're not that user-friendly, I'd say. They're great tools, but not that user-friendly. Now, Bravo is super simple. There's a lot of Bravo can do. There's a lot of stuff Bravo can do. It can analyze your model and show you where uh, a lot of your, your memory goes. It can tell you which columns you want to, to remove in order to optimize your model. It can format your DAX code for you. That is just, I love it. And it can also be used to create a date table through, uh, through a, a template. And again, th these are not hard things to do if you're used to working with DAX uh, or not DAX, with, with the Power BI desktop. But if you're a somewhat green user, this is a fantastic tool. As it says, it's a buddy. So I love it. It's completely free. It's available on GitHub as of uh, today. So definitely check it out. And it's a very cute dog. Huh. You saw it now, right? <laughs> I just saw that it was a dog. The thing is, I, I've been staring at this red something something for quite some time. And I, I did not see it as a dog. But yes, good catch. It's a dog. Yeah. Good dog. Get, get a five-year-old and you see toys everywhere. <laughs> Well, that's a good point. Yeah. Speaking about five-year-olds. Okay. Finland. I have no clue. I was about to say, speaking of toys. <laughs> I don't know which, which part the Finnish people would prefer. So let's go for toys then. I think toys is probably going to be better for us having the conversation with Haney next time. Yeah, um, I'd much rather explain why we said toys instead of five-year-olds. Well, when, when you put it that way, mm. we have new Finnish data centers coming up. That we do. I think this this is quite interesting in terms of where Microsoft is going because now we get data centers everywhere. You get the data center, you get a data center, and you get a data center. And to be fair, there have been or has been a Finnish data center for a very long time. It was actually one of the absolute first data centers that Microsoft opened up. But now they get an actual data center region uh, and where they also are partnering with Fortum, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Uh, in terms of making it sustainable the same way as they did with Vattenfall in Sweden. I think it's interesting to see how Microsoft now is changing from a let's have data center regions somewhere in each on each continent mm -hmm. to now accelerating that into now let's focus on where we have 
Azure customers or see a potential in Azure growth and make the data be placed as close to them as possible. And I wonder also if this, now it, it this must have been planned way ahead, but since they're also talking about the EU data boundary, where they will put everything within EU, it could be that they actually need to scale out. So Amsterdam has been a tight yeah. sector for quite some time. Sweden will definitely help, mm-hmm. um, as will a lot of the European data centers. But yeah, we, we need more data centers up here in, in the Nordics. I mean, the distance from Sweden to Amsterdam is not insignificant. It's the same for for Finland. Yeah. And the thing that I, I was um, surprised by, do you know where they're, they're going to park this thing? Close to Espo, which in turn is very close to Helsinki. That is interesting. So Espo is the second largest city in in Finland, mm-hmm. and Espo is right to to the west of of Helsinki proper. And that is quite unusual. Like apart from Amsterdam and Dublin, mm-hmm. it's not often that you put them that close to major cities. Because it will impact power consumption. So the the thing is, I might be reading too much into this because what they're saying in the press release is that the waste heat produced in the data centers will be converted to district heating, serving Ooh. Finland's second largest city of Espoo and uh, neighboring Kaunainen and, and Kirkonyomi. And Haney will absolutely... <laughs> laugh her posterior off for that uh, terrible pronunciation. But uh, there is only so uh, much distance you can put between a data center and the the consumer of the heat. So it would surprise me if it is going to be very far from Espo. Yeah, but that's... And that must be a first for Microsoft where they're using the excess heating to do that. I haven't heard about them doing that anywhere else. I was about to say, I thought they did something similar in Sweden. I don't, I haven't heard about it at, at least. But we mm. have a, a very well built out network of, of heating in that way already. Moving on to log, logis, lo, logistical challenges. Indeed. So, as most do at this point in time, uh, you know that I work as a workplace architect or a digital workplace architect. Therefore, a very common uh, discussion I'm having with customers today is, okay, how are we going to design our workplace post-COVID? And then we can always argue about the post. So it's one thing to design a digital workplace that suits an organization from a technology point of view. That's not hard. It doesn't matter if you're going full return to the office or fully remote. We have all the technology that we possibly could need, and it's not particularly hard to to configure it. The challenge will always be the organization and the users. And I think it's very interesting to also add the legal aspect to this. So currently, I'm trying to help organizations in, in discovering what they are required to do, how will it impact them, and how will it impact the users. And I will put this in a Swedish context because the laws are of course different depending on where you are but based on a a quote from a very 
um, known legal firm in Sweden that work with these kinds of questions. It's quite obvious in our Swedish law that you as an employer have the responsibility for your employees' workplace and that they feel healthy and safe regardless of where that workplace might be. Going back to ergonomics, if you have a working from home strategy, to some extent at least, you are responsible to ensure that everyone who wants get an appropriate workplace even at home by law. And I think that that's been very different depending on which organization you have had and, and how much things you had at the start of the pandemic. But I think that's important to take into account. How should you follow up on that? What is needed? How should you do if you purchase a share for an employer, an employee, and that person leaves? Do you take it back? And then you get into all of these taxation laws and so on as well. If you give someone a share and they are allowed to keep it, should they pay tax on it? And like I said, this is of course highly dependent on which country you're in. But these are some of the aspects that I find intriguing in working with this. That we are not talking about technology. We are talking about so many other aspects that I as an architect need to take into account. Are you sure you're not looking for the word infuriating? <laughs> No, I'm a very odd person. You know, you know. I, I also love Microsoft licensing. Uh, so oh, that's a to, good point. Yeah, so to quote, I think it's Obelix in, in uh, French and English as well. I was dropped in a pot or of potion when I was young. To ask you a very direct question, and, and sorry, Atolo, for putting you out there, but do you have a strategy? Does, does your employer have a strategy for how you're supposed to work moving forward? We do. So you... If if you if you want a chair, you get mm-hmm. one. Yeah. Period. That's a thing. It's not a strategy. <laughs> no, and, and and that's the thing. I don't I don't think anybody has even thought about taking that chair back. But mm-hmm. I I totally agree with you that according to Swedish tax laws, you're you're up shit creek if you give something away. And we've both been on the receiving end of that when we were working for the yeah. um the Swedish tax authority does not mess about so you you don't have a, a policies as such um, but everything just works today but what kind of so so let's say a, a very common thing in many countries are that people have bought themselves a dog during the pandemic a so-called covid dog and I've heard discussions that, okay, I now need to work from home because I have a dog. What do you say about that? And now I'm asking for your personal opinion. How flexible should you as an employer be based on whichever argument their employees have? I'd, I'd say that it should probably be, be the other way around. Because if you as an employer need to adapt to your employees without wanting to you're you're up shit creek mm-hmm. we need to rethink the whole idea of a flexible workplace yeah. but I'd, I'd argue that anyone perching a dog and then realizing holy crap i need to actually take care of that dog they they need a slap in the face 
that's how an animal works. And that's why I get absolutely furious because we were considering taking on a, a third or a fourth cat mm-hmm. because people, as the pandemic was starting to ease, was essentially just tossing out cats. Yeah. Now, most people wouldn't do that with a dog, but apparently cats are second rate, so they don't care. They're essentially just putting them out there. Now, it wasn't that bad, um, but we, we were... We were prepared up until just going to the shelter and and helping out, but we didn't have to, thankfully. Mm. So I I think that's a stupid argument. And if you try to do um, essentially blackmail your your employer, well, play stupid games, win stupid prizes. Um, That's not a reason why an employer should consider doing a flexible um, setup. But yeah. having said that, I think it is imperative for the employer to be flexible. Make sense? Yeah. yeah, but, yeah but I think that's the case. Like you need to realize how important is it to us as an organization to allow some or full flexibility to our employees. And that will be dependent on so many different things. Uh, and I think that is what a lot of organizations are missing out on. And I also think it's a very, again, a something that we have two very clear camps in. That we have one side that thinks the only right thing to do this is full flexibility. And I don't agree. It might be the right thing for some organizations. But to say that that should be the norm, I simply don't agree with that. I think uh, You, you we, know where I'm going to go with this, right? I'm I'm going to look at this as the tooling. And what do we say about the tooling? The tooling doesn't matter. It's all about why are we doing this? Essentially looking at why are we working in the first place? Yeah. And and then you need to take into account, and this would be the last thing before we, we move, need to move on, because it, apparently it's not Haney's fault that we're always running out of time. <laughs> of course it is. Yeah, of course. Uh, but it's also important to remember that you have actually signed an agreement with your employer that states X things. And to now be given a change in that in terms of flexibility, where to work, where do you, where is your office, you need to change that contract because you have signed it. The, the pandemic doesn't change what you have signed. You haven't agreed on something. And if you want to change that, add something to that contract for both your sake and your employer's sake and for your colleagues' sakes as well. And and I need to add one, one more thing because I think we're in agreement on this and then we'll add. I've also received the question, and now in Swedish perspective, if you had a salary before the pandemic and you lived in Stockholm, as an example, and you during the pandemic decided to move somewhere else, to some place where it's cheaper to live. Should you get a lower salary? No. I'm 100% in agreement with you, but a lot of people actually think that that would be reasonable. And I can't see how that worked out. I'd be more than open to having a discussion about it with my, my employer. Because at the end of the day, it's everybody needs to win. Let's put mm-hmm. it that way. So if I were to to move into to Svapavara, right to the next of nothing, where the house is uh, 150 euros, 
no, I, I, I'd be more than irritated. Let's put it that way. If, if my, my pay was automatically reduced is, is what I'm looking for. But if my employer said, okay, if you want to move here, we're more than fine with that. Mm-hmm. But could we discuss a, a salary change? You're going to get this in compensation or it's, it's a give and take kind of discussion. Then it's a whole different ball game because if, if I'm open to a discussion, that should be just fine. But we're back to the agreement. You cannot change my salary without me agreeing to it. Absolutely. And since we have spoken about the future, we have spoken about working from anywhere, we have an upcoming event on April the 5th where Microsoft will reveal the future of hybrid work. Again? Yeah, the future of hybrid work. Yeah, but they they keep revealing this to us from time to time. Yeah, but they can always say the future. It's like, come on, the, the future is different every time they say it. And it doesn't make the previous statement wrong. Just that they were wrong. So when when will then be 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 now? <laughs> Very soon. Very soon, yeah. So they will probably talk about Windows 365. They will talk about uh, more of the fluid framework coming to Office apps. Ah, now loop. That's fluid. Oh, that makes sense. That makes uh, no, but but it <laughs> at least it says <laughs> at least it says that it didn't come from any like nowhere. So the fluid thing that we have spoken about for a century now, almost, uh, has now renamed Loop. That makes sense. We need to speak to someone about Loop again. But yeah, so something with LinkedIn, something with Teams and meeting rooms, especially. Something with Windows 365. Uh, more about Office and especially the fluid components of that. And do remember that the fluid components are not just the aesthetical. It's also real-time collaboration, as an example. So we'll see what they have to say. But I think they are now really seeing that, okay, the world is now apparently getting rid of COVID. Again, coming from Germany, that's not really true. Um, and they want to emphasize that this is the future, even though... We're back to normal, doing big air quotes here. You need to think about IT and how to build a hybrid workplace for the future. And on that bombshell with a lot of fluid in the loops, (laughs) it is time to end this episode. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back in a week or so. And until then, have a good one. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Need Even Tech. Native in Tech is a bi-weekly technology podcast hosted by Alexander Arvidsson, Simon Binder, and Heini Hilmaninen. If you have any feedback, questions, or would like to be part of an episode, please reach out to us on social media or via email at podcast at